Connected Parents, and welcome to another episode of Connected Parenting. Today, I want to talk about the freeze response. In past episodes, I've talked about fight, I've talked about flight, um, but I haven't really talked about what happens in the freeze response. So in this episode, we'll explore what's happening in your child's brain, or maybe your teenager's brain, or your young adult child's brain, or maybe even your brain. Hi everyone, I'm Jennifer Colary. I'm a child and family therapist and a parenting coach and the founder of Connected Parenting. And welcome to the Connected Parenting Weekly Podcast. Join me every week and we'll tackle everything from temper tantrums to bedtime to sibling issues to teenage angst. Parenting can be so wonderful, but it can be so hard. Parents often say to me, hey, can you just come live at my house? This is the next best thing. Let's do this together. So in order to understand what's happening during the freeze response, I want to do a quick overview of what's happening in the brain when the brain is anxious. So just a quick reminder, frontal lobe, that's the part of the brain that inhibits, organizes, prioritizes, understands nuance, um, takes perspective, can decide, hmm, is this actually dangerous or am I just interpreting that this is dangerous? That's the job of the frontal lobe that is higher order thinking, takes a long time to develop that in a brain. Adults tend to have more access to that type of advanced complex thinking than younger children, but that's the job of the frontal lobe. The midbrain's job or the limbic system's job is to forget all that and just pay attention to danger. Is the situation life-threatening? Could I die? It is the security system of the brain and it is incredibly powerful and it can override the frontal lobe because there are times where thinking and planning could actually get you killed. For example, if you're walking across the street and you see a car coming at you very quickly, you are not going to use your frontal lobe. You're not gonna stand there and go, hmm, that car's coming really quickly. I could run that way. Actually, it might be faster if I run that way. You don't have time to do that. So in that moment, your frontal lobe is going to shut off. The two parts of the brain are gonna sever. The midbrain is gonna take over and you're gonna end up at the side of the road barely remembering how you got there. And that is a very important survival mechanism in the brain. And none of us would be here. Human beings wouldn't be here if the brain couldn't do that. What happens though in our society today is we don't need our fight or flight brain. Uh, we don't need that security system response for most of us, if we're lucky enough to live in a place where we don't have to live, where there's high danger. What ends up happening is that that response takes over uh, more than we would like it to. And it takes over in unnecessary times. Now, the other thing that's important to understand is that when you've had a life where there has been an accumulation of stress that can cause the brain over time to flip into the freeze response more and more often. So for more just for more detail on anxiety episode uh, 122, I talk about anxiety management where there's actually more tools. In episode 43, which is Warriors to Warriors, I go in also into more detail about what you can actually do. Um, so that may kind of supplement what you're learning in this episode. All right, let's dive into the freeze response. So the first thing you have to understand is that it's an involuntary reflex. It is a reflex, which means there is no cognitive decision-making in it. It is happening uh, without the frontal lobe. It is independent of what the frontal lobe thinks. 
Now, the frontal lobe can still be on. The person can be standing in the kitchen, frozen, realizing that they have to move. And the frontal lobe is saying, you idiot, what are you doing? Move, go. Why are you standing here? This is stupid. But the midbrain is going, don't you dare move. And what's happening in that moment is the midbrain is convinced that the person is standing, I don't know, in a field of grass and there's a lion two feet away. And if you move at all, the lion will see you, hear you, smell you, and you will be eaten. It is that real for the midbrain. It is ridiculous because there's no lion. You're not in the grass. You're in your kitchen or you're lying in bed. But to the midbrain, that is absolutely real. So the should part of the brain and the shouldn't part of the brain are not speaking to each other. They are not on speaking terms in that particular moment. So a number of things have shut down this moment, right? Your ability to process language. The person often can't speak in this moment. They might grunt or make noises, but they can't actually even talk in that moment. And if you're speaking to them, you are added noise and energy. You are actually getting in the way of how the brain is trying to filter information and pay attention to that lion. So they will see you as um, part of the kind of frightening landscape of what's happening. All the social nuances, the, the ability to understand, you know, humor or rationale, or if you're being threatened, nothing in that moment is going to get through to the brain because the frontal lobe is offline. So let's think about what we often do with our, let's say, teenager when they're in this kind of paralysis state and can't move. We usually start by motivating get out of bed. Do you realize what's going to happen? It's just going to pile up while you're lying there. You're, you can't escape this. It's getting worse as you're lying in bed. Come on, your sister's out of bed. I had to get out of bed when I was your age. That's the kind of thing that we're sort of saying. First of all, they're only listening to bits and pieces of it. And trust me, when they're lying there in that bed, they are thinking all those things. They are literally thinking, you idiot, move, get up. It's going to get so much worse. Everything about this moment is going to be a hundred times worse if I can't get up. There is nothing that you can say to them that they have not already said to themselves or aren't already saying to themselves in that moment with the small part of the frontal lobe that can actually be heard. It can't do anything. It's kind of impotent in that moment, but the voices are still in the head. It's just the body can't move. So I want to give you an example of an analogy. Let's say you were in, I don't know, a movie theater and a fire breaks out. And you know, hypothetically, for some reason, everybody else managed to get out of the theater. And when you go to get out, the doors are locked and you cannot get out. You are stuck there. You are, and it's getting hotter and the fire is coming. And let's say the security guard is saying things like, you know what, you're gonna be okay. Why don't you just take a few breaths? Let's just breathe in and breathe out. Let's just try to relax a little bit, try to control your anxiety so you can think about how to get out of the theater, right? That That's what it feels like when you're trying to motivate or offer them strategies. Well, why don't you just do this? Or why don't you just do that? It's literally like you're doing it from behind a door, a locked door, and the room that the person's in is on fire. That's the best example that I can give you. So, so what is actually happening for them? So for, for a person in that state, it is a chronic accumulation of stress over time. So, and it doesn't have to be big, giant things. For, for a child that has ADHD, 
where this paralysis is part of, uh, you know, of the ADHD itself, or this is very common in gifted children and adolescents and young adults. Um, it's very common if you have anxiety, if you have sensory overwhelm and sensory processing, when you get so overwhelmed and that chronically happens over time. So your, you know, teenager or young adult has had assignment after assignment and they've, you know, barely made it, or they've done it the last second, or they've blown this, or they haven't shown up at that. And that's just accumulating over time. The level gets so high that the brain actually thinks they are in mortal danger. So that getting out of bed or moving from that spot that they are currently frozen in will result in certain death. So again, it's so important for you to understand this is not a conscious decision. They are not standing there going, I'm just going to stand here so people leave me alone. Like they cannot move. They are frozen in place. They can't talk in that moment. There's not a choice in that moment. And inside their head is a torrent of, you know, self-anger and self-loathing that they can't move, but they cannot move. They can't do it. You know, think about if somebody said to you, oh, just what? Just put your hand on that stovetop that's on. That burner is red hot, but just put your hand on it. You know, for some reason, um, all day, people have been putting their hand on it and nothing's been happening. It wouldn't matter what you said to that person. You could threaten them. You could offer them things. You could promise them the moon and they would not put their hand on that stove. That is the situation that that person is in in that moment. So the other piece that you have to understand here is in this moment, the survival brain is basically a resource hog. Um, it will divert all resources other than the resources needed to, you know, breathe and run your heartbeat and do those basic kind of survival brainstem functions. Everything else is drawn away and it will end up um, sending all of those resources to the survival system, which is why the frontal lobe is inactive and ineffective in this moment. You also have to understand that the person is in a feedback loop. So the more they stand there, even if they have like a second of thinking, okay, maybe I can move. Then there's a, yeah, but if you move, that thing is going to still be there. And then they're frozen again. And then they're mad at themselves that they couldn't even get unfrozen in that moment. So it's this weird kind of feedback loop that they're in, um, which causes them not to be able to move at all. So you will often see the person either standing in the room, they could be holding onto a chair or a counter, and literally they just look like they're looking off into space. There's not a lot of facial expressions. Maybe the eyes are really wide, the pupils are dilated, they may be breathing quickly. They're, they will not be able to communicate with you in that moment. And we think about some of the things that we do with our kids in those moments. We threaten, we try to get them to use strategies, we uh, promise them things, you know, if you can do this, if you can get, you know, get back to that desk, you know, you'll earn this or I'll buy you this or whatever. None of that can get processed in that moment. Threatening and yelling, you end up, you become the lion in the grass that they're hiding from. You become part of that terrifying landscape. The brain can't distinguish any of that stuff in that moment. Um, and if you use humor, if you're trying to joke around and get them out of it, that they cannot and will not respond to that. And that can also be incredibly provoking and upsetting because the part of the brain that can even process that nuance that can understand humor in that moment is absolutely 1000% offline. 
So let's come back to what you can do in that moment. So coming at them, coming too close to them, speaking to them in a voice that's too loud is too much. In a very neutral tone, you can say, you can soothe them, say, I love you. I can see that you're frozen. You're having one of those moments. Is it okay if I just stand here with you? I won't stand too close. Let me just stand here with you. And in that moment, what you can do is regulate yourself. So instead of having your eyes all, you know, wide and come on, and and even if that's in your body where you're so panicked that what's happening to you, what's happening to my child, why can't you move? Um, They're going to pick up on that energy. So start with your own self-regulation. Take a big sigh breath out, relax your jaw, relax your shoulders, do some breathing. Just try to relax yourself and in your head, not out loud, in your head, you are repeating I'm so sorry that you're having this moment. I'm so sorry that you're frozen. And this is the only thing your body can do right now. You're thinking that you're not saying that for a few minutes, you're just standing there with them, or you can actually like leave a little bit and be sort of withdrawn, but, but kind of there that can sometimes help. Any verbal soothing can be, I'm sorry, your brain is doing this to you. I'm sorry. You're having a moment like this. Take a minute, just ride the wave, like something like that you can say to them. Or, you know, don't say anything at all. Sometimes that can help. This freeze state can last anywhere from 90 seconds to five or 10 minutes. Um, And it is just, it is an involuntary survival response. The brain will eventually realize that nothing has jumped at them, nothing has moved, and it will let go a little bit, although that assignment is still there. Or that task that they have to do is still looming. Um, the the brain will often work this through uh, like a wave. Um, here's the other thing. Now you can't do this in the moment. You can talk about this after, way after a moment like this, or before a moment like this. But you can talk about how important it is to celebrate little tiny moments and little tiny wins. So that, again, you can't do this in the moment. But the idea is, and if this happens to you, you can do this. The idea is, I don't know, let's say you're lying in bed and you can't get up. You want to get up. Everything in you wants to get up, but you can't get up. So you, t- you take a tiny little movement. Maybe you roll over and face the door or the window, or maybe you sit up. You just sit up for a minute and you take half a second to feel the power And the little dopamine you hit, you get from sitting up, from doing something you thought you wouldn't be able to do. Tiny little thing. Now there'll be a part of the brain going, you're an idiot. Why am I celebrating sitting up? Everyone in the world can sit up. This is so stupid. There will be that part of the brain doing that. However, it's not so easy to move if you're in the grass and you think a lion's there. It's not easy to walk towards the lion. That takes an incredible amount of courage and bravery. And not everyone has this anxiety freeze response. So when you actually sit up, you are doing something monumental. You are doing something incredibly brave, right? That few seconds of bravery needs to be celebrated. So you sit up. Now, the important part is after a minute of sitting up, lie back down. What you're doing is you're telling the anxiety part of your brain, I'm not going to just jump out of bed. I get that you're worried that something's going on here. I'm going to lie back down. You lie back down and then you sit back up. And then you kind of, so what you're doing is you're taking like a couple of steps forward 
theoretically, and maybe even physically, and then you're taking a couple back. So you're kind of dancing around with the anxiety, showing it that you respect it, but you're also going to start moving, but you're also not going to jump right out into that lion. And this is a really important dynamic. And this takes patience on the ha on behalf of the person and a lot of patience on behalf of the parent who is watching this thing happen. And you just want to go, oh, get about it, right? It, it's really a very, very difficult thing to imagine unless it's happening to you. You just have to trust me that this is what's going on in the person's brain. So you keep scaffolding, right? You keep getting these teeny little dopamine boosts, this little administering of dopamine, just little by little by little until you come out of that freeze response. Now, for those of you who've listened to my podcast before, you know I'm not big on cheerleading. Right? So if the person actually does unfreeze and they get out of bed or they and they wander into the kitchen or they've come out of that freeze state standing in the middle of the hall or wherever they were, do not say, see, look at that. You can't do it. Look at you moving and all of that. Don't do that. That's First of all, it's patronizing to the person. Second of all, it sends them right back into anxiety mode because oh my God, now look how happy my mother or my father is that I did that. That's really terrifying to me. What if I can't do that next time? What if I'm never able to do this again? And back into the anxiety they go. So your response is very neutral. You either say nothing at all or you say, okay, you're moving. Don't go too crazy. Take your time, right? And what often happens for a lot of people that have this kind of freeze response is once they've unfrozen, they might try to do too much. And then as soon as they try to do too much, they're right back into the, the state of freezing. And it's kind of an in and out, very slow process. So no cheerleading, you are neutral only. All right. So the other thing that can be really important, and again, you're not doing this during the freeze response, you're doing it before or after is talking about this wave. There'll be a wave of anxiety that is absolutely paralyzing. The person is feeling it in every single cell of their body. They, they often will kind of stiffen up a little bit. They'll literally freeze like a stone. You have, and you have to encourage them, again, not in the moment, but you're talking about it before or after, that it's like a wave. And if they just stand there and they still stay still long enough, the wave will release and they can usually come out of the freeze state. But you have to kind of wait for that. Know that sometimes, again, I was sort of talking about this a moment ago, that there'll be a clawback, that if you try to do too much, the anxiety will grab you back. So take little tiny steps that you scaffold. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes the person, as they're coming out of the freeze response, can do the technique with their hand on their heart, where they thank their anxiety in their mind. They can be like, okay, thank you. Wow, that was powerful. That was an incredible amount of energy. I felt that everywhere in my body. That is how much my body loves me. That is how much my body wants to stay alive. That is how powerful my freeze response actually is. And if I'm ever in a situation where there's a bear or a lion, this is awesome. It's just not awesome when I have to think about what I'm going to make for dinner or the assignment that I have to do or that form that I have to fill out. So again, it's just going towards the anxiety, recognizing that it is self-preservatory, sending it some gratitude and some love, and then working on integrating it so that we don't want to get rid of it. 
We need the fight or flight response. We need the freeze response. We need all of those incredible, powerful, dynamic human responses. We just don't need them in non-emergency situations. So now I want to talk about you. What is happening for you when you are watching your child go through this? It is terrifying to watch your intelligent, beautiful, funny, amazing kid freeze and look like they're refusing to do anything that is going to help them. It is an incredibly frustrating and terrifying thing to watch your child go through. You're literally watching your child go offline like a robot, just go offline. It is heartbreaking and it is frightening. If this is an ongoing thing, you really need to look into seeing if you can get some support, some therapy for your teen, for your child, for your young adult. They can learn strategies over time that integrate the frontal lobe and the midbrain. And then the midbrain only comes online when it's really, really a dangerous situation. It is possible to integrate and to learn strategies and tools that can help this integration. Sometimes, in fact, quite often, they won't want any help because the anxiety will see the help as interfering with the safety and security response. I'm not going to learn those strategies. I'm going to learn. I'm not going to learn that stupid stuff. It's just going to keep me just as uh, unsafe. And then I'm going to have to do the stuff anyway. So there's this pushback that the anxiety becomes really afraid and resistant to any kind of help, anything that will make it dim or integrate or slow down or settle down that will disguise itself as rational thinking. Your child will think for all the world that it is rational. I know more than the therapist. I've done tons of reading. That's not going to help me. None of that's going to work. You're just trying to trick me into therapy. So you can't push them into it. Um, but every once in a while, see if you can align with them. So it's the two of you trying to help calm the anxiety down so it doesn't take over every aspect of their life. There is support and information for you on this in the masterclass. I do cover this, the kind of do's and don'ts and then actual strategies that you can use as a parent to help your child as they're going through this. That's in the online masterclass. Remember that there's two versions for that. There's just the online support where you have access to it anytime you want uh, with through videos. Um, the other is all of that plus the monthly coaching calls where I'm actually interacting with everybody. Uh, my books also talk about this. Go back again and look at some of the other podcasts that I've done on anxiety. Um, this, these are all really helpful resources to help you on your parenting journey. Thank you for listening today. And I will see you next time on the next episode of Connected Parenting.